0: You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Last week we began a new series on the Old Testament book of Esther, who has not yet been mentioned. The entire first chapter is consumed with a Persian king named Ahasuerus, but we know him better by his Greek name Xerxes. Xerxes. Who is consumed with himself? One of the things we discovered last week is that Xerxes loves his throne. He loved to sit on his throne. And from his throne, he would give orders across the largest empire in the history of the world to that point. The Persian Empire covered roughly 3 million square miles. He was in his mid-30s, and by all accounts, he was tall, dark, and handsome, kind of like the guy that's talking to you right now. And he said he had as much wealth just surrounded him that he lived in luxury, opulence, there was nothing but that. He was defended by 10,000 bodyguards, referred to as the immortals. And he had surrounding him the most learned men in that day. People would come to meet with him and pass before him and proceed before the throne of Xerxes. And you had to bow down and worship like he's a god. And if you tried to sit on that throne, death to you. Even if you tried to stand on the rug in front of the throne, death to you. He loved his throne so much that he would throw large, lavish parties and just sit on his throne where people would bask in his glory and sing his praises. Women would be paraded before him and he would choose whichever one was most interesting to him that day. And when his army of a few million would ride off into battle, he would be carried on his throne, set Atop a a high overlook, so he could see his soldiers demolish his enemies. As we examine the story of Esther, the theme of kings and kingdoms are going to awake our imagination and cause us to wonder is this the best king there is? Is this the best kingdom that we could possibly want? Well, as we start back in Esther, chapter 1, verse 10, we're going to once again examine this king and this kingdom. And when we're doing it, we're going to learn two things. Number one, that addictions are fed by this king and this kingdom, and he is in every way a portrait of what the Bible calls elsewhere the world. The world is not just this physical place that God made, it is the spiritual temperature and attitude of those who live on this earth but don't know God, who live in a worldly way. And Xerxes and his kingdom represent worldliness. And one of the first things we learn about this kingdom is that in it addictions are fed. Here's where we start back. On the seventh day. So, what's happening up to this point? Xerxes has been seated on his throne, and over the course of six months, he throws this enormous, lavish, extravagant party, open bar, all you can eat and drink, perhaps 15,000 men in attendance. This is a very disgusting, degrading, demoralizing event, and it continues with primarily military personnel. So you get this in your mind. The king is on his throne, open bar, 15,000 soldiers, all you can eat and drink, no rules for six months. It's absolute sin, unleashed, unhinged. And then it ends with an even larger party for one week where more guests are invited. And it said at this point that not only were they over-consuming, but the king himself, this is the next part of that verse, was in high spirits from wine. It's a way to say that he drank too much. And just so you know, we don't make smart decisions when that happens. sometimes folks think, well, if I attach myself to this addiction, eh, somehow I I get smarter. (laughs) You wake up and you realize, you know what? I can't find my car keys, can't find my pants, can't find my bail money. It wasn't that smart. And they had that myth as well. In that day, the men would gather and they would drink and they would make decisions and sleep on it, thinking that in that state they were actually thinking they were drawn closer to clearer thought and closer to their gods. It's not true. Drinking is not a sin, but overindulgence always is. And so here we are seeing men who are overconsuming. And the result is they start to make very bad decisions. So, one of the first things that addictions are fed, and you need to know that again, that Xerxes and his kingship and his kingdom are symbolic and representative of the world. Here's how the world still works there is corporate human nature, depraved nature, aligning together with Satan to cause people to sin against God. That's worldliness. And the way the world works is like this. It doesn't make you do things you hate. It makes you do things you you love, things that are bad, things that are wrong, things that are enslaving and addicting. The way that various kings and kingdoms, the way that the world system works, it's always the same because whether it's Xerxes on the throne or Pharaoh or Nero or whoever is on the throne of their little kingdom is trying to amass for themselves honor and fame and glory and power. You need to know that this world is a trap. And some of you will get frustrated because you think, God said no and I want yes. Yes. Satan always says yes because he doesn't love you the way a father does. And the way a father loves his children is sometimes he says no. He says no when what they're going to do is going to harm themselves or others. Those who love you the most will sometimes tell you no. Those who are part of this world system but well, not only give you what you want, they want to give it to you in excess to feed your addictions to your destruction. God loves us enough to want us to hear no. So the first thing we learn about this king and this kingdom is that addictions are fed. The second thing we learn is that women are mistreated. We saw that coming, Right? One guy sits on the throne, all the military and, pers- and, and political leaders gather for six months, open bar, and women are turned into the harem. So what happens is he's seated on the throne, and here comes the grand finale, the conclusion of this enormous party, the six-month party, he's going to make a request. Here's that request. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and there are the seven names, we'll just skip over those. You can read them. (laughs) To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. (laughs) Some of the ancient commentators say that maybe what she's asking is to only wear her crown. I don't know that that's the case. Nevertheless, the request, the command really is to have her show up so he can show her off. Here's the deal. We talked about this last week. Remember, he steals Vashti from his brother because she was beautiful he's drunk, everyone's drunk, he's seated on the throne and he decides it's time to show off my beautiful wife. So he calls for Queen Vashti. Get Vashti, get me Vashti. Think of a guy who is just out of control. At this point he's on the throne but maybe he's sideways on the throne. He's, He's hanging off the throne. You gotta see him in that light. Get Vashti. And all the military guys are cheering. Yeah, 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 we want to see the queen. We want to see the queen. Go get her. For how many of you women, this would be a bad day? These guys have been drunk for six months. Your your husband is hammered, and he wants you to come and parade in front of a bunch of drunk soldiers. So what's Queen Vashti going to do? Some of you that are sticklers for the Bible are like, well, it says wives submit to your husbands. Well, let's see what she does. But, oh, you know this is going to get good now, right? The seven eunuchs go to Vashti. All right, it's time for you to come and parade before. And she's like, tell him to stuff it. But he thinks he's Lord God. He sits on a throne. Tell him to stuff it. Tell his majesty to stuff it. Who does he think he is to order me around like a puppet on a string in front of a bunch of no good nobodies and the biggest one sits on the throne? Those seven go back to the king. She says, no. (laughs) Well, the attendants delivered the king's command. Queen Vashti refused to come. The king became furious and burned with anger. Drunk and angry, not a good combination. You know why he's angry? Because he's humiliated. The debate is this, did Vashti do a good thing or a bad thing? There's no indication she's a believer. She doesn't worship the God of the Bible. So we're not saying that she's a godly woman. And what we are saying is that she made a very brave decision, but was it a good decision? You see, Jewish and Christian commentators have debated this throughout history. Some think it wasn't a good decision. Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, obey their husbands, respect to their husbands, defer to their husbands. And, and, and what happened here is he gave a decree and she said no. And it happened publicly in front of all these other men. So he's humiliated he is shamed by her. This woman should never have done that. Some of you might take that perspective. You'd say, yeah, she should have submitted. She should have obeyed. She should have respected her husband. And others of you will say, no way. What she did was a good thing, a noble thing, an honorable thing, because what he asked of her was reprehensible. if your husband is a jackass and you do something that he asks you to do which is wrong you're just as bad as he is so I vote for that second view I believe Vashti made a noble courageous brave moral decision and she stood up to a guy that no one ever stood up to before no one ever told him no they thought the son spoke through this guy that he was a God man and Vashti said, no, he's a nasty man and he's asking me to do nasty things and and I don't want to be nasty just because he's nasty so I'm going to say no to Mr. Nasty. It's all there in the Hebrew. Now let me say this as a teaching moment. First, let me begin with the men. Number one, men, what is your standard of beauty? Answer, your wife, okay? When God made Adam and Eve, he didn't give them a list of options. (laughs) Tall, short, skinny, not so skinny, long hair, short hair, great breath, breath that melts things. They didn't have a list of options. What God gave Adam was a woman or an aardvark. Okay, woman, looks great to me. For Eve, he gave her Adam. That's it. God didn't give them a standard of beauty. He gave them a spouse. He gave them a spouse, and our spouse is our standard of beauty. Here's the problem. Xerxes thought his wife was beautiful. Nothing wrong with that. But he wants her to parade in front of all these other men so that they would covet. They would commit adultery in their heart and compare their wives to his wife, Man, our standard of beauty is our wife. Wives, your standard of beauty is your husband. This is the way God intended it. This is marriage. So practically, that means if your spouse is tall, you're into tall. If your spouse is short, you're into short. If your spouse has hair, you love hair. If your spouse loses his hair, you hate hair. (laughs) Your spouse is your standard of beauty. In addition, your wife is to be your best friend. Remember when God made Adam. He said it is not good for the man to be alone. So he made Eve to be his wife, his partner, his helper, basically his friend. And if they were truly friends, let's say that Vashti and Xerxes were friends, would he have treated her this way? No, you don't do that to your friend. You don't objectify your friend. You don't denigrate. You don't parade. You don't in any way want to bring harm to your friend. This is what happens when marriage is about money or sex or power, and it's not about the relationship. The way to mitigate that is to always be working on the relationship with your best friend who is your spouse. You see, Xerxes had innumerable women, but he had zero friendships with any woman. God wants us to have one spouse and to be best friends with them. You need to know that our hearts, all of us, are inclined toward the same things. Whether you're a man or a woman, you look at Xerxes, his heart was inclined toward money you love money the bible doesn't say a whole lot about those who love money a whole lot of good i should say his heart was inclined toward power do you love power what about comfort sex food drink there's a lot of us that are like xerxes now for the women ladies i have one thing to say to you Submission does not include submitting to things that are degrading and or humiliating or endangering. If your husband is asking you to disobey the Lord, then your husband is not the highest authority. Know that, first of all. That's the good news about Christianity. Above the king is the king of kings. Above your husband is the Lord of lords. Men, we only have derivative authority. That means it is borrowed from the Lord. And if your husband is disobeying, disregarding, degrading, dishonoring the Lord, then he shouldn't be obeyed. Because the highest authority says no. He may say yes, but he's not the highest authority. So ladies, if your husband asks you to lie, to steal, to cover for him, to participate in some sin, evil, injustice, crime? No. All right, back to the scriptures. Verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Again, you got seven people. You can read them. There you go. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked his seven wise men. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Well, this is about to become an international crisis. Here it is, the most powerful man in the world at the time. He's ruling over 3 million square miles and he can't handle his wife. How many of you men are like, man, that just described my life? The story continues. Then Memicon, one of the seven who was named, one of the seven wise men, replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong. Not only against the king but also against all the no oh man he's he's just he's just making this one big also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of king Xerxes oh this is a crisis When she told you no, all of a sudden, the women realize that's a good word, little but powerful no. They've been practicing it all day at home, and it's an epidemic. Next thing you know, we fools won't get our way. What's going to happen? He continues, the same wise man, for the queen's conduct will become known to all of the women, and they will despise their husbands and say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. I mean, can you see this? These are very powerful men. Well, you know, King, if we don't do something and we're all jerks like you, then our, our, our wives are going to get frustrated and, and they're going to tell us to stuff it. This is now a crisis, King. What's going to happen is Vashti gonna back down or is she gonna to stick to her guns? Next verse. He continues. This very day, Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Anytime men have to impose respect, it just goes to show you that those men are not respectable, right? Men, let me say this. It's your house. If you have to keep repeating the obey me verses, maybe it's just that they don't respect you because you are not respectable. But here's something King Xerxes never does. Repent. Let me ask you, is Xerxes right or wrong? Well, to help you vote on this more easily, let me remind you, the request of his wife was to parade in front of 50,000 drunk men. Is that a good or bad request of King Xerxes? Oh, and he made this decision while he himself was drunk. So what should he do? Apologize. Sweetheart, I'm sorry. I was drunk. I shouldn't have been. I was hanging out with the guys. I shouldn't have been hanging out with the guys. And and what I asked of you was wrong, please forgive me. Instead, he remains unrepentant. So as we hear this story, we need to continually ask ourselves: how am I like Xerxes? How am I self-righteous? How am I stubborn? How do I think the world revolves around me? What kingdom am I trying to build? In what ways am I foolish? And where in my life am I unrepentant? When we're wrong, we should repent. Even if we are the one that's the more powerful in the party. It doesn't matter if you're the boss. You should apologize to your employees if you've done wrong, said wrong. It doesn't matter if you're the husband, you should repent to your wife. It doesn't matter if you're the parent, you should repent to your kids. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor, you should repent to the congregation. It doesn't matter if you're the president, you should repent to the voters. It doesn't mean just because you're in charge that you're always right. Repentance is where I acknowledge I was wrong. I could make excuses, but what I said was wrong, what I did was wrong. Is that you? I know it's been me on too many occasions. Everything gets really hard and complicated when people remain unrepentant, especially people in positions of authority. And we all have some place that we are in authority in our lives. Here's what happens when we don't repent. We defend ourselves. And that's what's happening here. He's unrepentant. And he starts to build a case. You know what unrepentant people do? They build cases. Here's his case. I'm the king, she's not. I sit on a throne, she doesn't. I rule the world, she's lucky to have me. I give orders and everyone obeys. She should have obeyed. She's my wife. What right does she have to say no to me? And she's humiliated me in front of other men. How can I rule as king with my dignity intact, without my dignity intact. And oh yes, the men are right. If she defiles me, if she defies me, I'll get my language right. If she defies me, we will have anarchy. We will have corruption. She is taking down the entire empire. Isn't it amazing what one unrepentant person will do to build their case that sounds pretty convincing. But Satan is not only a deceiver, he also helps us deceive ourselves. What's gonna happen? Here's what they say, verse 19. So this is is where the seven wise men make their conclusion. Therefore, If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. So the laws of Media and Persia, maybe you've heard that before. It is such a case where no matter who gives it, in this case, the king, it is irreversible. And here, here's the decree that they're asking him to make, the next part of this verse. That Vashti is to never again enter the presence of King Xerxes. Now, maybe it's just me. That seems a little funny to me. Vashti, the seven eunuchs say, the king wants to see you. Well, I don't want to see him. And the king says, well, she can never see me again. And she's like, that's what I asked for in the first place. But they're not done yet. Here's the next part of that verse. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. What is the definition of a good wife? Well, what is their definition? One who remains silent and does what she's told. Such a one who can find. The wife (laughs) was originally created in Genesis 2 to be a what? A helper. A wife who only always says nothing or only says yes is not very helpful. He doesn't want a helper or a friend. He basically wants an obedient pet, right? I mean, full obedience is not something you want from a spouse. It's what you want from a dog. They continue with their statement. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women, you see, they're they're putting their wives into this picture because they know what's going to happen if Queen Vashti gets away with it. All the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. You know, the easiest way for a husband to have his wife's honor and respect is to be honorable and respectable. We close the verses with this. Then the king and his nobles were pleased with his advice. So the king did as Mimicon proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. It's like Xerxes is trying to write a little book of the Bible to cover his own sin because that's what fault gods do. He wants this edict sent out to all the people in their native language to be read and obeyed (laughs) you know what that really is that's the word of God that's what we call it what he is doing is not the word of God this is the word of a false king a horrible man and let me say this there is a difference between what is legal and what is holy In that day, they thought the king was kind of like a God and it was all corrupted and and intermingled. And so let me say this, above every king, above every president, above every dictator, above every ruler is another king. And that king alone gives laws that do not change. What happens here? Is that Xerxes sent out a law that is unholy? And this is so important for God's people to distinguish. Something can be legal and yet be immoral. Something can be permissible in the eyes of the state, but not permissible in the eyes of the Lord. Do you get that? Adultery, it's not a crime. You're not going to get arrested for it, but it's a sin. The murder of unborn children is not a crime, but it's a sin. The redefining of marriage is not a crime, but it's a sin. It doesn't matter what the laws of the state say. It matters that we answer to a higher law. What has happened to this point in the story is the door is now opened for Esther. Vashti exits. The question is, who's going to be the next queen? That leaves the door open for Esther. We're going to get there. But again, I hope you experience this, this theme of kings and kingdoms as leaving us aching, longing, wanting for more. Xerxes was the greatest king in the world in his day, but every generation has chased after the same foolish myth. If we could just get a good king, if we could just have a good kingdom, then we could have a heavenly life on this fallen earth. It doesn't matter if his name is Xerxes or Pharaoh or Nero or a dutch, duchess or duke or a president. It doesn't matter whether they assume the throne or elected to the throne. When fallen, faulty, flawed sinners sit on a throne, you will not get a glorious kingdom. There is a great aching at this point in human history and it's crying out, where is the one who is to sit on the throne? Is there another king? Is there another kingdom? Is there more hope? Is there any help? Will a king come? This is one of the last books of the Old Testament. And then there are 400 years of silence. Where is a king? The king that we long for is high and exalted, he is ruling. Seated on a throne. And he does something that Xerxes never could. He gets off that throne. And he comes down into this confused, fallen, flawed world. And he came not to take, but to give. He came not to enslave us, but to free us. So the story of Esther Falls within the storyline of the scriptures that are all about Jesus. And if we don't allow Jesus to come into this story through the themes of king and kingdom, all we're left with is moralism. You know, like King Xerxes was a bad guy, Queen Esther, you'll find out, is a good girl. So be like Esther, don't be like Xerxes. That's moralism. That's not enough. You see, the Bible is not just good news for what we can do. It is mostly good news for what God has done. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.